Welcome to another episode of our burgeoning podcast, Food for Thought, where we deep dive the issues surrounding the world of sports. I'm your host, Evan Makovsky, alongside Bob Fesco. And in this episode, we are going to have play-by-play announcer Ian Eagle, who's been with the Brooklyn Nets for 27 years. He's been with CBS National since 1998. He works for Turner Sports as well. He's called every sport under the sun, and he will discuss what his life has been like. And his son also is the play-by-play radio voice of the Los Angeles Clippers. But this guy has been living it in and out. And I want to just start with um, what spurred this episode for me is that Marv Albert, and I read his book of about 25 years ago. I'd love to, but I have a game. And he used to call hockey. He called football. He called the Knicks games. He he did everything under the sun. National basketball for the NBA on NBC. A spectacular move by Michael Jordan. I'm not going to do the impression, but I wanted to take a look currently now that Marv stepped aside a few years ago, Vin Scully stepped aside, Bob, and look at the life of a full-blooded play-by-play announcer, both on the local level and the national level, and what that person's life consists of. Well, Ian's one of the best in the business, and, and he's been coming on our radio show for years now to talk about the Chiefs and, and their opponent when he has their game. And you're not going to find many people nicer and, and friendlier in this business than a guy like Ian Eagle. I mean, you know how it is, Evan, with the egos in this business. There's a lot of folks that think they're too good to talk to two you know, local yokels like me and you, but Ian Eagle always has time for everybody. And I think that's one of his true trademarks is that he is he is a gracious, he is wonderful, he is awesome to everybody that he comes in. In contact with and he really lives the you know like a good life like nobody is too small for Ian Eagle to have a conversation with and I think that's pretty cool because in this business we see a lot of people with egos that won't give folks the time of the day and now not only is he great as a human being he's unbelievable as an announcer and as you mentioned his son his son is rapidly chasing his heels we saw him do the Nickelodeon football game last season mm-hmm. and how good he was on that and and Ian Eagle is really developing a a second coming if you will of himself with his son. So it's cool to watch both of their careers. And it's always awesome to talk to Ian Eagle. When I think of play-by-play announcers, as far as the top play-by-play announcers, I would have to say Marv Albert is at the top of the list. In baseball, um, Vin Scully, to me, is the greatest play-by-play announcer ever. And it's also been said to me, too, not just the life that Vin Scully lived calling the Dodgers you know he's a Fordham he's actually from New York he graduated Mm -hmm. Fordham but uh you know maybe a teacher in school but Vin Scully called these games by himself and it was once asked to me is there another human being who's spoken more words in the history of the world now again like I said maybe a teacher but then Vince Scully, it's such an art. 
Yeah, he, he really did. And he was the best of all time. And I, I think when you're talking about the greatest, you know, baseball announcers that are out there in the history of that game, Vince Scully ranks number one. And I don't know that anybody will ever knock Vince Scully off when it comes to baseball and, and to have the talent and the ability to do radio and TV, both at the same time and paint a picture for each audience. Like you're listening to the game exclusively on the radio or exclusively on television and just the knowledge and history he had of that Dodger franchise. And for me, it was always one of those things going to bed, you know, late at night, I would flip on the, the Dodger game. So, you know, you know, pay for the uh, MLB ticket or whatever, just so I could get Vin Scully kind of late at night and, and go to bed with Vin, as they like to say. And, and that was always great just to listen to him call those Dodger games and, and Dodger games, you know, as, as good as a franchise as they are, they're just not the same without Vin Scully, you know, sitting behind the mic, even to this day. And he's been gone, what, three or four years now away from Dodger baseball. They're just not the same without Vin Scully. No, even them winning the world series this past year during the, uh, COVID shortened season and separately, I don't fault them. I think that that's a legitimate title, a hundred percent, but you know, now you take a look at Marv Albert wrote that book. I'd love to, but I have a game meaning he's always on the road. He's calling a football game. He's calling a, uh, a basketball game. He's calling the New York Rangers on the radio. It just all over the place and he was just like a machine and I know he I did read his book growing up and he sat I mean this 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 was a kid who knew he wanted to be a play-by-play announcer he sat in his stands and called his high school football games into a recorder and to me he's just the busiest as far as now he's done um I believe he's 80 years old he's done But as far as the last generation, that generation, we're going to get into the Iron Eagle generation, but I I can't think of a busier sportscaster. Sure, there was Dick Enberg, Al Michaels called baseball back in the day. He's called football. He even did the NBA when it was on ABC. He's an absolute pro. I'm not... But to me, Marv Albert, I think of as the busiest announcer of all time. And I think Ian Eagle follows in those footsteps. Well, he, he, he definitely does. And I think if, if you want to be a successful announcer now, you've got to be able to do multiple things. Gone are the days of just making it off doing 16 football games a year. I mean, you have to go out there and do all sorts of other stuff, you know, not only to make ends meet, but to really enhance your career and, and let everybody know what you're all about. I mean, you got guys like Kevin Harlan, Ian Eagle, even Jim Nance is out there doing, you know, multiple sports besides just the, you know, the NFL and and the NCAA final four or whatever he's a part of now. And so you've got Nance doing multiple things. You've got all these guys that do these multiple things. It really goes to show you just how talented they are, especially a guy like Jim Nance, who goes from the final four on a Monday to the masters on a Thursday and takes two days in between to forget about basketball and learn about golf and what's going on on the course. And so I I think it really is an art. I know a, a lot of fans like to rip on broadcasters and say they stink and everybody thinks that they can do it better the chances of you doing it better than any of these guys that are on the big national stage are slim to none that's how good these guys are and how great they are at, at perfecting their craft and they never stop working at it man i'm sure there's never a day goes by where a guy like Ian eagle jim nance kevin harlan some of the best out there now aren't working on their craft and trying to find ways to get better i'm not sure that Ian eagle has a catchphrase i don't think he does when you which is fine i agree that it's fine but then you look at Dick Enberg, oh my, Marv Albert, yes, Mike Breen, bang, Kevin Harlan, a dagger right between the eyes. So I, I don't know if it's necessary 
to have a catchphrase. And I, I will say this, Marv Albert sounds like a New York announcer, but he had a shtick. He had a shtick. And if you have a shtick, you can get away with kind of being regionalized on a national level. But then you have a guy like Bob Costas, who's so universal, even though he's from New York, he's from Comac, Long Island, but he spent after Syracuse, he didn't even graduate. He got the St. Louis Spirits job and he's off to the Midwest. And they always say the Midwest is the most universal uh, accent as far as announcing goes. But I think you can get away with having an accent if you have a shtick. But if you don't have a shtick, I think that you cannot sound regionalized on a national level. Well, there's no question about that. And I don't think really when you think about it, any announcer on the national level right now truly does sound like they have a New York dialect or a Chicago dialect or a Boston dialect or even a St. Louis kind of accent. So I, I don't think you see that, you know, in, in the uh, in the big name sportscasters right now. And, you know, you mentioned I am not having a shtick. I, I think, you know, maybe he does have a shtick and that's being extremely funny and being low key funny. And if you get it you get it and if you don't you don't and you're kind of on to the next I think that's what Ian Eagle provides I find myself during a lot of his broadcasts whether it be an NFL game or a college game you know college basketball or NBA game whatever you catch him doing I find him a lot of time being subtly funny and I'm dying laughing wondering like how much of the audience is getting this right now because for me it's extremely funny and he does great impersonations as well as you'll hear during our uh, our conversation with Ian Eagle he does some of the best impersonations that I've ever seen so I think it's his subtle humor and his wittiness and, and how smart he is that comes through in that humor that I think could be considered maybe a shtick if you really wanted to get into it. Bob Fesco, what's his play-by-play experience? Uh, not much. I, I did Texas Lutheran University when I was right out of college, a Division III uh, football program in Seguin, Texas. I did a little uh, stuff in college, and then I, I got out into the real world after I did the couple of years at Texas Lutheran University and realized I'm probably too opinionated to survive as a play-by-play guy because, for the most part, it's different from doing a, a you know an opinionated talk show. And an opinionated talk show, you got to come strong with opinions. You got to have ways to back them up. Doing play by play, you're down the middle of the road. You're not supposed to say somebody stinks or somebody's the best ever or the greatest ever. You're supposed to just call the game and and, and let the game kind of dictate everything. Out in, there. Unless you're a home team. And, announcer. Well, unless you're a home team announcer. Yeah. If, if you're a home team announcer, obviously everything for your team is outstanding, great and wonderful. And any call that goes against you sucks. Right. I, but, I mean, uh, uh, Mitch Holstis, Holtis, uh, uh, Holtis, excuse yeah. me. Touchdown, Kansas City. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was an awful impression, but he certainly uh, is a homer, I would sure. say, for the uh, for the Chiefs. Which and it's a different bag too. You but know, that's Mark- what your home team audience wants too. They want that excitement. They want you living on every single play and every single moment because fans are too. They're all screaming touchdown Kansas city when something like that happens. So you want your announcer that is the local guy on the radio to be that hometown hero for lack of a better term. And then there's the life of a play-by-play announcer and um, being married and potentially having children. And we know Ian's son and Ian also ran a sports casting camp, which I've read quotes from his son. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do it anymore, but I mean, this guy, he, he mentored me through uh, my sports casting days. And he was just so kind, like mm-hmm. you're talking about, like he is a, it is a cutthroat 
unkind business. Let's just call it what it is. You, you know it, I know it, and especially the radio game is, but Iron Eagle is a outlier there. But the point I'm making is, getting on planes, calling multiple different events. So we'll hear from Ian called track and field. He's hosted tennis. He, you know, he, he talks about, they, they would say, you know, this event, or I, you know, I have an anecdote about boxing. And, and he told me it was just like, Ian will do it. Ian will do it. But that really is from getting on planes to time away from your family to working weekends. It is hard, I think, to maintain a stable personal life. I, I don't know. I was never I did Aspen High School play by play announcing. And I actually enjoyed it because once you kind of get into it and I, I don't think I had the voice for it. I don't think I had the inflection. I don't think I had the tone. But really, just tell people what's going on. You know, just, uh, you know, number four passes the ball to number seven, who dumps it into the low post. You know, when you overanalyze what you're doing, but to me, it's a, it's a real commitment at, at that level when you're doing games and you're on the road all the time to juggle um, a personal life. Yeah, it probably is. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're doing what you love too. you're out there doing what you love. And I'm sure if you're marrying somebody that that, you know, knows what they're kind of getting into uh, at the thing that you're going to be gone a lot. But there's also a lot of time of the year where those guys are home, man, like the summertime, once the NBA ends in June, before the NFL season gets kicked off, there's a couple of months there where you're home every day. And I'm sure by the end of it, everybody's ready to say, all right, go travel again. And then especially during the NFL season, I mean, you're traveling probably on a Friday and getting back on a Sunday night or early Monday and you have all week that you're home and then once the NBA season picks up it probably gets a little bit you know busier obviously when you're doing some games during the week and whatnot but but Ian's found a way to make it work man he's found a way to make it work with his family he's found a way to make it work with his professional career and, and I think if you're a kid now the lessons that Ian Eagle is going to teach us is is really unbelievable and it's to never say no and be willing to do everything and I think for for some and, and maybe for a lot of this generation too Evan you know saying yes and being willing to do whatever it takes is a little bit of a lost art. And there's another guy in hockey who I think is as good as it gets. And he is a, a little bit older. I don't know how much more of him we have, but that's Doc Emmerich in calling hockey, which is not my favorite sport of the four sports, but the pace, the line changes, the, you know, just the, uh, just to keep up with that action. To me, Doc Emmerich is somebody who's, you know, I've heard Joe Buck praise Doc Emmerich as, you know, it, we're all trailing him as far as, but I mean, calling a hockey game with speed. And then also you want to go into radio too and painting the pictures that to me is a very difficult sport to call well it is and, and that's where the best are I think when you think about it I mean Doc Emmerich for all those years was so good it's a shame he retired because he still sounded great I mean he was still awesome on the air and it is a tough sport you've got to do your homework you've got to know who those players are you've got to be familiar with the roster you can't constantly be be looking down you know you got to get rid of numbers because on the radio nobody cares about the numbers because they can't see the numbers and so it's just one of those deals man where you have got to be overtly prepared every Every single night prepared like you've never been prepared before to call a sporting event. And, and I think that's where the hockey guys really truly stand out from everybody else. 
So right now, the Iron Eagle group, and we look forward to catching up in, with Iron here momentarily, I would say is Kevin Harlan, Iron Eagle, Mike Breen, and maybe Brian Anderson. Brian now. Anderson's asleep. I'm glad you mentioned him. I was just watching a Brewers game the other night. He also does the Brewers on yep. television as far as national stuff as well. I, I think he's one of the more underrated and undervalued announcers right now out there. I think he's just fantastic. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk to Ian Eagle about his life, about how he got into sports casting. He stayed as a local announcer with the Brooklyn, formerly the New Jersey Nets. He is from uh, the area, the New York area. So he's lived there. He told me at one time he never wanted to move, but he was willing to travel, but he has just become a national stud. So when we come back, we will talk to Ian Eagle, play-by-play announcer, NFL, play-by-play announcer, NBA, Brooklyn Nets, play-by-play announcer. And you'll find out he's called a lot of different sports. That's next on Food for Thought. I'm Evan Makovsky with Bob Fesco. Ian, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the program. You're so diverse. Uh, NBC didn't recruit you and take you to Tokyo. <laughs> well, first of all, I thought this was going to be about food and all of my weird issues with food. It has nothing to do with no, the fact no. that I've never had a salad or any condiment. No, it's about the food represents oh. an issue. And your issue is that you are a multifaceted or maybe it's not an issue. It's a good thing. It's your living <laughs> that you're a multifaceted, diverse play-by-play announcer. You can do it all. So let's hop into uh, the first question. Describe your life during busy season, which I gather is NBA season starting, NFL season is going. Take us, you know, it could be even in in March when you're doing NCAA, NCAA games and NBA games. Take us inside your schedule. Yeah, inside my schedule, I've just grown used to it. I think when you're outside of it and you look at it, you say, what was I thinking? Why would I take a red eye from Salt Lake City back to New Jersey to do this event and then turn around and fly in the morning to Houston for a different event? But when you're in it and you're living it, you don't really put it in those terms. Uh, For me, it's everything that I always wanted to do. I wanted to multitask. I wanted to do a bunch of different sports. I wanted to say yes when opportunities popped up. I never wanted to be the person that answered the phone when we used to actually talk on the phone and say, no, no, I, I can't do that. I wanted to be open to all of these opportunities. And for the most part, I've had very few issues, knock on wood, travel-wise, fatigue, uh, sickness, tiredness. I've avoided all of that. If we do get back to the food thing for a moment, I've never had a sip of coffee in my life. So most people just assume, oh man, you must live on coffee. I've never had it. So all of this is a natural high that I'm living day in and and day out to do this job and to juggle that schedule. Well, I think it's interesting though, that you're, you're like in, in shape the way that you are. You've never had a salad. I have to work every day and eat salads (laughs) every day just to stay like looking average and drink coffee every day with getting up at three 45. What's your secret, my man. 
Yeah, I'm going to make this a food podcast, whether you like it or not. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm in on that. Let's go. My my secret is uh, moderation more than anything else. I eat crappy, but I just don't eat a lot. So I'm not sure that's the way to go. That's what's worked for me. And I am a very picky eater, but I don't consume large amounts of food. Everything is usually in moderation. The, the one story that comes to mind for me, uh, just thinking about all the travel that, that Evan mentioned. And look, there are times where I'm doing six games in a week in six different cities, whether it's NBA local, NBA national, and a college basketball game thrown in uh, to a city where you have to connect. And there's one particular moment I remember quite well. Many years ago, I had done three straight West Coast NFL games blending in with my net schedule. And on the third game, I, I had done fine taking the red eye. I'm not a great plane sleeper, but I had gotten enough, but the third one got me and my schedule was upside down. And I had to turn around and fly to Houston for an NBA game. And I got on the plane and I'm doing work. And as I mentioned, I'm not a great plane sleeper, but I noticed on descent that my neck was getting looser and my head was bobbing. I was doing that head bob thing where you catch yourself. But then I, I, I must've hit a nice patch where I fell asleep, but it's the kind of sleep we're all aware of where you know what's happening around you. You're conscious, but you are enjoying the sleep. And I'm, I'm a good five minutes in and I start hearing abnormal sounds during the sleep. And the sound, it sounds something like, I said, what is that? And it's going to wake me up. And it's actually pissing me off because I have finally got some sleep. And finally, after two minutes of that, I lift my head up to look around to see what the noise is. And there's three people around me just staring at me. And I quickly realized that the noise was coming from me. I had lost all bodily functions. And the guy next to me is looking at me. And when we made eye contact, he says, are you okay? Are, are you having a stroke? So I had no idea what was happening in my body. That's one of the only times that I can recall that I had no control over what was going on and probably should not have taken that assignment to go to Houston after the three straight West Coast trips. But for the most part, I make it work. Well, we deep dive uh, the issues surrounding the world of sports. So let's deep dive this. You don't drink coffee. No. But what happens, first of all, and you can answer this together. Why don't you drink coffee? And number two, a lot of people, they drink their coffee in the morning and then they hit a wall around two or three. Yeah. So this is a serious question. What do you do? Like if you hit a wall in the middle of a game, maybe, you know, you know, where people hit a wall, they start yawning. They start, yeah. you can't, you can't do that. You don't have that luxury. What, why no coffee? Why no pick me up of some sort? A cocaine. I yes, just, right. That's just the, dedicated that's myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hell of a drug. I am. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think it's a deeper thing with coffee. My mom drank coffee and growing up, we were not allowed to speak with her until she had her coffee and literally the lights had to be out. So I think it was a deeper psychological issue that I thought to myself, and I'm talking about age seven or eight, where I said, okay, I don't want to get to that point in my life. Now, it's irrational. At some point you go, well, that was her. That doesn't have to be you. But it was deep enough for me to say, I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to drink it. I don't want to rely on it. I don't want to need it. I don't want to get addicted to it. All no, those things. No caffeine. No caffeine is what no, you're no, 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 no. soda. I, oh, no, no. I, I would crush a six pack of Pepsi right now if, if you had it. I, I love soda. My wife wants me to stop drinking it entirely. I've gone stretches where I have stopped. And then it, it just overcomes me. Uh, it, it's... It's drug-like. I, I just like, I like soda a lot. It, it's funny. I was not allowed to have soda as a kid. And I think that also now plays a role in a rebellious mentality. And in, my parents traveled a great deal. They were both entertainers. And my father was a stand-up comedian, actor, musician. My mother was a singer and an actress. So it got to a point in probably early 80s where they were both gone for long, long stretches. And I was living with a, a live-in housekeeper and a buddy of mine came over and had a Mountain Dew and he drank it and threw it out in, in the garbage. This is pre-recycling. And the housekeeper saw it and she said to me, Ian, you like Mountain Dew? I said, yeah, I, I love, I've never had a Mountain Dew in my life up until that point. I go, I love Mountain Dew. She bought a case of it. I drank that thing. I did not sleep for a week. My body didn't know how to even process it. And my father got home and he must have seen, he goes, what was that? I go, dude, it's over. Like whatever streak you thought you had going for your kid has ended. I've now had the nectar. So it's done. To answer your question, I like caffeine. I enjoy caffeine. I just don't have coffee. It's, it's crazy how some of those things that happen to us as children affect us like our entire lives. Here you are telling yeah. this story about your mom having coffee. Like, I got to stay away from that. I don't want to end up, you know, yeah. with, with, with that kind of fits. I mean, childhood really does shape everything that you're doing. And having parents that are actors and entertainers is essentially what you're doing now. You're just doing it in a different forum. Yeah, I, I really should lie down because we could get into some much deeper stuff and I can get some things off my chest, things that I've held back for many, many years. You're right, though. It, it does. There's a there's a lot of that that factors in shaping who you are and what you're all about. And then at some point you do grow cognizant of it and you decide to make some changes or decisions based on the things or issues that you've held on to. I'd like to think it makes me interesting and others would say it makes you weird or quirky. I don't I don't think that's a fair uh, way to put it. I think interesting and eccentric might be a better way. Food for thought here has really delved into food and <laughs> not the issues surrounding the world of sports. I think over your right shoulder, I see Marv Albert. Uh, maybe that's not him. Maybe is he here? A little, a little, no, no, oh. a little, a little yes. uh, figure. No, no, uh, that's that's actually me and my son. A oh, fan okay. sent uh, after we did a little deal in Miami the first time we had done anything together broadcast wise a fan sent bobblehead of of me and my son but unfortunately it looks like Mike Emmerich and Daniel Snyder okay so I'm all over the place but more what about who <laughs> your role models are Marty Glickman Marv Albert uh, take us inside Ian Eagles play-by-play -play role models play-by-play uh, -play role models Marv Albert by far was the most instrumental growing up, had the biggest impact, wanted to be him. And I remember vividly telling my parents that at the age of eight, 
And they said, oh, you, you want to be like Marv Albert? You want to do what he does? I said, no, 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 no. I want to be him. <laughs> and then they had me see a child psychiatrist for about three years. No, that, that didn't happen. They probably should have. And then, you know, I'd walk around the house and, and to, after my mom had had her coffee, I'd say, I'd like my eggs over hard <laughs> with bacon, orange juice, freshly squeezed. You know, at that point, you just need to make friends outside of the house. Uh, that, that really was the, the next step in my life. Uh, Marv, Marv did play a very big role. And then I'd say once I got to college, and I recognized the talent and genius of Bob Costas. Uh, that definitely shaped a lot of my interests in broadcasting and trying to figure out what direction to go in. I was just blown away by his eloquence and uh, just how smart and articulate and gifted he was. So that was the next person that, that caught my attention. There have been so many since then and in between Al Michaels and Vern Lundquist and, and many others and many contemporaries who I respect greatly. But definitely in those formative years, uh, those were the guys that that really grabbed my attention. I and eight must be like the remarkable age, because for me, that's when I realized this is what I wanted to do. You're looking at Marv Albert and guys like that. Mine was John Madden. I was like, man, watching the Giants as a kid every Sunday with my dad seeing Madden and summer. I'm like, yep. I'm never going to play this game, but I kind of like this John Madden guy and, you know, the boom and the circling of the water coolers and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what that kind of attracted me to this. And here you are doing all the great play by play stuff. And I'm mimicking John Madden, like everyday life, just having fun and being stupid on <laughs> radio right <laughs> yeah you, you gravitate to those that are relatable to you and there's definitely something about style voice vocabulary presentation it's the whole package there's not one of course you're right about madden the boom is what hooked in a lot of people certainly youngsters but then when you went a little deeper you realize that he was just so affable and he was larger than life. He, he brought this sense of importance every time he put a headset on to call a football game. And the balance, that was something that was really important too, learning about that dynamic of teamwork and partnership. And without Summerall, maybe Madden doesn't become Madden. And without Madden, maybe Summerall doesn't quite become Summerall. Both Summerall was already, Pat Summerall was very successful prior, but John Madden brought him to a new level, a new stratosphere. And Summerall ended up being the perfect balance for John Madden. And the two of them together were magic. So for me as a play-by-play -play announcer, I recognized very early in my career making your partner look good, putting them in the best possible light and allowing them to be the best that they can be benefits you greatly as a play-by-play -play announcer. If you just get stuck in your lane and hyper-focused on what you do and you're not listening and you're not tagging and you're not following up what your partner's doing, then you're not maximizing what this could be. It could be really fun, really entertaining, highly informative. But if you don't see the importance of that relationship, then you're shortchanging it. 
you've had a lot of longtime partners, uh, Dan Fouts, I think of yep. in basketball, you've had um, longtime partners as well. If you, without offending anybody, if you had to say the top three color guys you worked with were who? Well, I've worked with Bill Raftery for 27 years, and he probably had the, the biggest impact on me professionally, not from someone that I just followed and listened to. I'm talking about in the trenches, learning what this is all about, and not him sitting me down and telling me, hey, kid, you should do this, you should do... No, 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 no. I'm talking about being there, osmosis literally being there the first time he ever used onions <laughs> first time uh, and to see it play out the way that it did for him getting all of the accolades that he's received becoming the lead analyst for college basketball and the final four all of these things that he so richly deserves uh, to me that's that's been so rewarding because when I broke in as a very young broadcaster and I got to sit next to him for my first year doing TV with no TV experience, I can't tell you that that whole experience changed my life, changed my career, uh, personal life. He's one of my closest friends, family friends, and then professionally uh, just just being around him and seeing how he treats others, how seriously he takes his job, how his liver is at a hall of fame level. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever meet another liver quite like that. Like next level liver. You're making me snort. I'm laughing so hard. Maybe you should have done the stand-up comedian routine like your dad, man. And your impressions are like dead on too. Yeah, how can you ever do these on the air during a game? Like just start being Bill Raftery with Bill Raftery or I, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that we had a game uh, many, many years ago. I've done an impression of Bill on the air with him, without him. But one particular game, Kerry Kittles on the net scored a huge basket late. I believe it was in Dallas and we're going to commercial break and carries from New Orleans. And for whatever reason, I just felt on, on the highlight going to break, a slow motion replay. I said, you know what? I'm just going to take it to break as Bill. And I, on the spot, came up with something that he might say on a big Kerry Kittles bucket. So we're going to break. Nets take a two-point lead. Huge basket from Kerry Kittles. And now I just break out. Jambalaya! <laughs> and we go to break. And that's it. And the producer, our longtime producer, Frank DeGrace, who I've worked with for 20 plus years, he's fantastic. One of the best people in the business and one of the best producers in the business hits talk back in my ear and says, isn't Raph the best? And I hit talk. Back, I go, that wasn't Raph. That was me. He's like, no way. He goes, bullshit. I said, play it back. <laughs> So during the break, they go back frame by frame and play it back. And he hits the talk. He goes, that is the best impression I've ever heard in my life. I had him convinced. And then I think Bill used that, by the way, later on, like in some other game. Ooh, jambalaya with no credit given to me whatsoever. 
So Ian, you have the uh, the boom down. You have Marv Albert's yes as a play by play. You think of even Mike Breen and Bang and uh, I don't know Kevin Harlan a dagger right between the eyes. I, I I know these left and right. I can't do it like you, but you actually I think have the best inflection when it comes to a big play. How is that something you worked on? I'm not even saying a catchphrase, just like when a big play happens in the NFL, you're right on top of it. Is that something again, that just came natural to you? Or um, is that something you worked on? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Evan, I think in in this business, nobody ever really tells you it's a lot of trial and error. You try a bunch of things and you see what sticks. So it's not in the pamphlet. When you get the play-by-play job with the Nets or with CBS or with Turner, you don't get a booklet that that says, hey, follow along and this is how we want it done. They're trusting you that you're going to bring your own spin on it. And it's all going to be within the boundaries of what they deem not just acceptable, but preferable. So with the NFL, I broke in. I had done one year of play-by-play with the Jets on radio in 1997. I had been doing the pre- and post-game show since 1993. I get the big break. I get hired by CBS. And I'm figuring it out as I go. And as I look back on it now, I had to find my voice in many ways. And I mean that literally and figuratively, literally in that I don't think I sound exactly the same as I sounded in 1998. If you played back the highlights, you would hear that it's me, but I fine tuned and I've polished and I've made some adjustments and alterations. The first game I did NFL for CBS was Peyton Manning's first game as a pro with the Indianapolis Colts, Colts, Miami, his rookie year. That's my first game. I'm working with Mark May. And you could find the open on YouTube. Somebody sent it to me recently. And I voice a tease and Manning trots out onto the field. And then it's an on-camera and it looks like a ventriloquist act. Mark May is six foot five. I'm not. It looks like I'm on his lap. It's like Senor Wences. And uh, away we go. I look young, but it's me. And it looks like me. I've got bigger glasses, uh, hair, pretty much the same. And voice inflection. You could hear it. It's me, but I've definitely figured some things out along the way, how to maximize what I've got and how to really find the right levels in the moment. And really it's about consistency. I think more than anything else, you know, when I listen to Mike Breen, who is a very close friend and someone that I respect greatly, for the work that he does. Kevin Harlan, uh, who you mentioned as well, people that I consider very close friends. I am amazed by how consistent they are in their performance. And that's what I aspire to as well. I just, I want it to be so the viewer or the listener knows if I'm doing the game, they know what they're going to get. There's not going to be any surprises. Of course, I might surprise them with a term or a turn of the phrase or uh, my excitement level in the moment matches what they see with their own eyes or if they're driving in a car, it gives them a, a sense of the drama. But I want it 
to be something that they know what they're getting. And after 20 plus years of doing it, I think that's what we all are trying to get to and the place that we're all attempting to be at. I think one of the things you mentioned earlier that that really kind of, you know, stuck with me is you, you didn't say no, you're falling asleep on planes and getting woken yep. up and things like that. You never said no. So when you look at where the industry is today, how significant do you think that attitude was back then to get you to where you are right now today? But the fact that you were saying yes to everything all the time and willing to do whatever it took. Yeah, Bob, I think it was a combination. I think not only was I saying yes, but I was going in with a supremely positive attitude, even on things that I wasn't that familiar with. Uh, There are now a number of events that I look back on that I had no background in. I probably had no right being there, but somebody trusted me to do it. And man, when I tell you, I did not want to let that person down. So the first time that I worked a golf event. It was the masters. I had never been to a golf tournament in my life, but they worked out a deal CBS with direct TV at the time to provide amplified masters coverage. And they had to man these positions. And I was assigned amen corner live ended up doing it for about six years. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed going down there other than my allergies. I don't know if you've been to Augusta, it's pollen central. Uh, you come out your car, it's got three inches of pollen on it. I do not do well with pollen. So that was a constant battle for me day to day at the Masters, but we overcame it. And you would have to stay in people's homes. They didn't have the hotel space, at least at the time. So you wouldn't stay with the people that own the homes. They would rent out the homes and you would stay there. And invariably, you know, I could get a kid's room. Like I slept in a race car bed one year. The, the last year, the last year that I did the masters, I'm in a 13 year old girl's room staring up at a life size poster of Justin Bieber on the ceiling. That's what I fell asleep to every night. And I think the final night of that particular masters, I was staring right into the eyes of Justin Bieber. And I said to myself, I don't know if I need to do this anymore. This, this might be it for me. So golf, tennis, track and field, yep. boxing. You know, the boxing story is, is one that's pretty hard to, to believe. I get a phone call in May of 2000 from a woman at CBS. And she says, you do boxing, right? Like that's a leading question. I went, yeah, I do the hell out of boxing. Are you kidding me? She said, great. We've got four fights for you this summer. And uh, Mike Arnold will be producing them. So just give him a call to get information. I hang up the phone and I think to myself, all right, what have I got myself into here? So I call Mike Arnold up. Mike Arnold is now the director for the Super Bowl, big time director at CBS. At the time, he was doing a little bit of producing as well call him up. I said, Mike, you got to just send me every VHS. This is VHS pre DVD that you have of boxing in the CBS archives. He sends me 90 hours of tape and it's Tim Ryan and Gil Clancy calling bout upon bout upon bout. And I just dive in. I immerse myself in this. 
I called Bob Papa, who uh, had done the Nets on radio when I was doing TV. Bob had been doing boxing for a long time for HBO at that point. And I get a sense of how he prepares and what his notes look like. I come up with a glossary of terms. And I was a boxing fan, so I had some working knowledge. And I show up now for my first fight in Las Vegas. It is David Tua against Obed Sullivan. And the executive producer of CBS Sports at the time was a gentleman by the name of Terry Ewart. And he happened to be in Las Vegas for a convention on the same day. So he calls me up and he says, uh, Ian, I want to take you to lunch. And if you knew Terry, you would say, wow, that's an excellent impression. I said, great, let's go to lunch. We go down <laughs> and have lunch. He has a chicken Caesar salad. I have chicken wings. I'm not a good eater. We've established that. And I'm on my second wing. And Terry says, Ian, what, what is your boxing experience? The fight's in seven hours. Like, it's happening. I said, well, Terry, I, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I've, I've never done a fight. And he says, really? And I said, look, I, I want to be frank with you. I've never been to a fight. And now I see little beads of sweat forming above his lip. And he says, really? I said, I'm going to put all my cards on the table here, Terry. I've never been in a fight. So I don't have any experience whatsoever, <laughs> in the, which wasn't completely true in fifth grade. I still don't know how it happened. This guy, Scott Brigham, told me in the afternoon, like one o'clock, hey, I heard you're fighting James Schneff after school. I was like, am I? <laughs> I had no idea that that had been set up. And at three o'clock, lo and behold, I walk outside and James Schneff was waiting for me. It was winter. It was snowing. <laughs> I had gloves on, very thick gloves. He was much taller than me. I, I closed my eyes. I threw a punch. I connected on his chin. He went down. I went home. Oh, I got wow. a piece of pizza. Nice. Yes. So nice. I was one to know. Yeah, want to know. So Terry says, well, what the hell are you doing here? I said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm fully prepared. I'm ready to go. And I go to do the fight. The fight goes two minutes and 28 seconds. David Tua knocks out Obed Sullivan. I didn't understand why everybody ringside was putting pieces of cardboard over their drinks. I had no idea. I didn't know if that was a weird boxing thing. And I quickly realized when uh, bits of Obed Sullivan's interior nasal cavity ended up on my chest after a, a flurry of punches from David Tua and in my drink. I was like, oh, that's why that's why they covered the drink. Oh, my. Because of that. Anyway, Terry watched it in the truck. He comes out after the fight. He, I'm going to clean it up. And he said, were you screwing with me? It sounds like you had done boxing before. And the point was that I just embraced it. And I ended up doing three more fights, including Mike Tyson against Lou Savarese in Scotland and Evander Holyfield against uh, David Ruiz and Orlin Norris against Andrew Galata. I flew home on the plane with Tyson. It was a United flight. He sat one seat in front of me. And he was cackling at the in-plane programming. It was one of the first years that I recall that you could have the monitor connected to your seat where you lift it out and you could pick the program. And I had to know what he was laughing at. I, I just was 
befuddled what would give him so much joy. So I didn't even have to go to the bathroom. I get up to go to the bathroom just to see what he was watching. He was watching an episode of Friends <laughs> and laughing maniacally. And I was thinking to myself, like, who, who was he connecting with? And I love Roth. Like, who did, who did he really feel a kinship with? I, I still don't know to this day. So, Ian, you've been with the Nets for 27 years, 1994, with CBS since 1998. I don't know the stats on Turner, but you've been with them for a while. So let's just go with that. So you have really worked your way up as far as teams. You know, they have a ladder and, and, and Jim Nance is number one. And he said, he's going to be, uh, you know, uh, he's going to be on his deathbed broadcasting the Masters. So <laughs> did he uh, say that? Uh, no, I, he said something like that. Like he wants to, you know, basically retire at Augusta handing off the green jacket, but he also calls the NCAA tournament and he only calls the tournament. Now he also is the number one announcer with Tony Romo and they look like they're entrenched in there. If you never make it to number one in television, because you certainly have the talent, you certainly have, excuse the term, the chops to do it. Is your life complete? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. Uh, that, that is not a motivation. And I don't mean to be flip or coy about it. Uh, Jim has been doing this a long time. He is a Hall of Fame broadcaster. He deserves everything that he's gotten based on his talent Agreed. and based on his longevity. I just don't get caught up in it, truly. I, I don't see it as motivation. I, I try to just do the best job that I can do. And I try to look for happiness in life. If anything motivates me, it's being happy and find a good balance with my family and not getting caught up in that side of it, because that's where you allow ego to take over. And of course, anyone that does this for a living, you have to have a healthy enough ego to actually get on the air and have confidence to believe that people care what you have to say. But then there's the other side of ego that can oftentimes derail you. So for me, uh, that really has never been an issue. It's certainly not an issue now. I do the games that I'm assigned. I'm thrilled to do them. The partners that I work with uh, are some of my closest friends. And everything that I've done up until this point will continue in the same mindset. Because to me, that's the only way to do it. If you want to lead a healthy life, uh, that's, that's really the only option. I think the only competition you really have for being number one is probably with your son now fighting him off. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I'm cool with that, by the way. I've said to him many, many times, like when, when you're ready, if it means me going off into the sunset and uh, living in Anguilla, <laughs> let's go. I'm, I'm okay with it. I've done more than my sh fair share of games, traveling, the lifestyle. Uh, I think what you realize in life too is no matter what you've achieved, no matter what you've done, it pales in comparison to your kids. Mm -hmm. Your kids mean more. And it's not a cliche. It's real. Like anything that he does or my daughter does far surpasses and supersedes what I do. 
And I've, I've felt that way from the moment each of them was born. Ian, uh, wrapping up here, and you, it's such a cutthroat business. Uh, we, we've talked as I came up in the business, and uh, it's a lot of people going for few jobs, whether it's play-by-play, -play, whether it's hosting, whether it's television. Sure, the business has changed over the years, but you seem to have a rare, you alluded to it earlier when it came to taking games, but a positive attitude just a positive attitude in a business where there are a lot of sharks and how have you maintained that if is it that you haven't your talent is so high and extraordinary that you you've been above that fray or is it just something you just learned how to deal with yeah i definitely learned how to deal with it early but I think somewhere along the line, I realized that you set the tone on a broadcast and everything surrounding the broadcast. So if you walk into a football broadcast booth, there are usually people already in there, camera people, stage manager, stat person, spotter, whoever it might be. And they're often taking their cues from the play-by-play -play announcer and or analyst. So if the play-by-play -play announcer walks in and is having a bad day or is gruff or is short, that then changes the whole dynamic of the afternoon, the broadcast and the vibe. So because I got my start so early on the play-by-play -play at a fairly high level, I looked at it as a responsibility and I think a lot of it, because I was so young and I looked very young, it wasn't like, oh, I'm 25, but I look 40. I was 25 and I looked 20. I felt that people were going to mirror my conduct in many ways. And if I came in positive and if I came in friendly and congenial, then I would usually get that back. And I think back, I started at WFAN radio right out of college. I was a producer to start. And it really was graduate school for me in not just the broadcasting side of being around great professionals and highly successful radio people, but also in life, in maturity, in seeing how to deal with people older than me, even though my job may have been higher on the food chain, treating them with respect and asking their opinion and valuing their opinion, not just asking, but taking the input and looking at the bigger picture. All of that was uh, highly important to me. And I, I've tried to carry that through the last 31 years. Uh, I graduated in 1990 and uh, my son graduated Syracuse two years ago. My daughter graduated Syracuse in May. My wife graduated Syracuse the same year I did. So I think there's just been a common thread within our family of how to do things the right way. It's a pretty simple ethos. Don't be an asshole. It's not that hard. Last question. You've been called so many games. What are the one or two favorite calls, games that you've called in your entire career? 
you know, I, I had a run where I was doing a bunch of games on world feeds. So it allowed me the opportunity to call big moments that did not air in the United States. They would often uh, be in countries that spoke English outside of the U.S. So it could air in Canada, uh, could air in Israel, in the United Kingdom. I am huge in the Philippines. I can't walk the streets. I mean, there would be a mob scene. Like literally, I'm big. Physically, I think I'm big as well in the Philippines. So the Michael Jordan push off on yeah. Brian Russell, I was there. Call the game for the world feed mm -hmm. was in Salt Lake City. I don't know if I've ever seen a more dramatic change in mood in one false swoop where these fans, jazz fans were geared up for a game seven. And instead within a snap of the finger, it's over. Michael Jordan has done it again and got to call that. So relived a lot of that when uh, the Jordan documentary came out during the pandemic, the Butler versus Duke national championship game I saw you after. I saw you after that in the elevator. Yeah. I remember. Evan, man, that you know that was a tightrope walk. If Hayward makes that shot from half court, not only is it the greatest upset of all time, I think it's the greatest ending of all time in a championship moment. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure you would have been able to find something more incredible than that. Certainly on the basketball side, a half court shot on Butler's turf in Hayward's hometown to knock out Duke. There was so much at stake in that one moment and had the chance to, to call that. Uh, I, I think that question still could be answered down the road. I, I still think there are games that could end up being the answer to that question. I just figured the right answer is anything Patrick Mahomes does. How about that? How about his first start as yeah. a full-time QB, as, as you know, Bob, and I think I might have done your show uh, prior to that week of I think you did. Yeah. all the question marks. How's it going to go? We know he's really talented. Can he be the leader? Can he be the guy? And he just carved up the Chargers. And I think everybody walked away thinking, OK, are we dealing with something different here? Is this just, oh, he had one of those weeks? Because I certainly walked away saying, no, no, no. This guy is the real deal. And then I had another game. I don't know if I had him the next week or two weeks later. He threw, did they play Pittsburgh maybe? Pittsburgh in week two. Yeah, it was like 10 yes. in the first two weeks. Exactly. And, you know, that, that moment, I'm sure if we look back at the highlights now, and there are sites that have every touchdown call that every broadcaster has made over the last five years. And I, to be honest, I will go back and listen just for certain phrases that I've used to not overuse it or something that I like that I completely forgot about from 2018 or 2017 and work it back in for 2021. I'm going to go back and, and watch those just to, to see what the mood was. Cause I remember just walking away amazed at what this guy is capable of. Well, I, I met you, Ian, and I want to wrap this up at 2003 Pauley Pavilion when I was working for the now defunct Sporting News Radio. But the, greatest, right. the greatest game that I ever saw, you actually texted me. I was at the Duke Butler game and game six of the 2011 World Series when David Freeze 
hit that home run. But the greatest game that I ever saw, I actually was stringing for Sporting News Radio and WFAN in New York, and that was USC Texas, the national mm. championship game, which was the most the Vince Young game. It's the great. I was at the fifty yard line, and and I just remember getting a text saying, "You heard one of my updates," and I sounded like I belonged. And coming from pound for pound, the best play-by-play announcer in 2021, I called you a retro Roy Jones Jr. Right now. I still hold that compliment. It means a lot. It's a pleasure to have you on Food for Thought with myself and Bob Fesco. And we look forward to in a month hearing you calling NFL games. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Really appreciate it. Evan, I I didn't have the heart to tell you, but I guess I can just tell you now. I was hacked. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't me. Not a surprise. We will <laughs> we will be in touch with you. Thanks for joining Food for Thought. I and be well. All right, Evan, Bob, all the best. Bob, that was wonderful to catch up with Ian Eagle. To me, he is the Roy Jones Jr. and not the Roy Jones Jr. who had a draw against Mike Tyson last fall. Roy Jones Jr. in his prime, pound for pound, the best play-by-play announcer. I was impressed with his answer about Jim Nance, if he never, ever makes it to the number one spot. But he certainly has the talent to do that um, at the network level, to call a Super Bowl on television. It may not happen for him. He sounded very much at peace with that, but he just loves his life. He's got his son and, you know, he's just autopilot, autopilot. And what could you ask between Bill Raftery to Marv Albert, you know, for better impressions? No, I mean, he's fantastic. And he was so fun to listen to. And what really stood out to me was how exhausting the job is. I mean, people think you're calling a game and you're living the the life and then you fall asleep on a plane and you're wondering what the hell that noise is. And that's you sleeping there because you're sleep deprived and you're so exhausted. It just goes to show you the hard work that goes in and kind of lets you in on really the work that goes in behind the scenes and preparing for all these games. I mean, you don't just show up and just open the microphone and start going. You've got to put hours and hours and hours of prep time in. So, you know, the players, and it sounds like you've been watching this team for a hundred years. I mean, that's how good Ian is. And every time you watch a game with him, you figure, man, this guy's must've seen every single game and every single moment of these teams. Cause he takes it to the next level. I mean, he's, he's got a fantastic way about broadcasting, but hearing that story of him falling asleep on the plane, I think it was like a propeller or something going off, just really like opened your eyes to say, man, this is a tough job. And a lot of work does go in to make you sound so good well for bob fesco i am evan makovsky and that was our look at the life of a full-blooded heavy scheduled play-by-play announcer on the national and local level we hope you enjoyed it and we will see you on the next episode of food for thought